Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Everyone, welcome to Let's Talk Native. I'm John Kane. I'm your host. And, um, you know, I decided we're going to contextualize history. I know that sounds boring, but no, let me, let me explain. We, when, when we consider, you know, even some of the tragedies that Native people have experienced, some of the worst events, you know, historically in, in the lives of Native people, we oftentimes look at them almost like they happen in a vacuum, like, like there's no context to, you know, what was happening in the rest of the world, um, or frankly, even who the president of the United States was at the time, under whose watch did these things occur? So I want to go through just a few of those things and because I think it matters. And, and as I do this, and, and after I do this, I guess my, my charge to you is that anytime you consider some historical event, uh, and, and of course, most of them are tragedies, I, I get that, um, but, but even if it's a period of time within a longer, you know, uh, a policy like residential schools or whatever else, take the time and, and, and look up what was happening in the world. Look at least who, who the president of the United States was, and then try to put what native people were experiencing in context to what was happening in the rest of the world. Whether you're talking about the depression, whether you're talking about, um, you know, a booming economy elsewhere or, you know, world war one, world war two, all these things, because I think it, it matters. And I think it matters to, to also show and demonstrate the continuity of the racist policies um, from, from Washington to Biden. And so, I mean, that's, that's really what I want to do here. So first, let me, let me start with, yeah, and, and I could do a lot with George Washington, but there is a letter, and I've talked about it on the show before, that was sent to William Henry Harrison, uh, who would later become president for about a month, <laughs> William Henry Harrison, who in 1803 was the governor of Indiana Territory. And this letter was from Thomas Jefferson. And what Jefferson, and I don't want to read the whole letter because, it, frankly, it reads poorly because the way they wrote back then is, is awkward, but, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll catch a little bit. And, and the opening of the letter is basically Jefferson explaining, I'm writing this letter to you in confidence because although you may understand the policy we have, this will give you better direction on what that policy is. And so you won't need specific instructions. So, I mean, what he, what he basically is saying here, he says, but this letter being unofficial and private, I may, would safety give you a more extensive view of our policy respecting the Indians that you may better comprehend the parts dealt out to you in detail through the official channel and observing the system of which they may part conduct yourself in the unison within the case where you are obligated to act without instruction. So basically saying, let this give be your guide 
so you know how to conduct yourself in the absence of any other details. And what the letter does is, and it really shows Jefferson's deviousness. What he, kept, what he, what he, what he was always saying is that we need, we need to live in a system of perpetual peace with the Indians. And we need to cultivate an affectionate attachment from them. So what he was saying is, look, we don't have to like these people, but we got to convince them to like us. And, and one of the, the specific instructions that he was giving Harrison uh, at the time was convince your trading houses to offer credit to Native people. They've got a lot of stuff that, you know, they got a lot of land that we want and we got stuff they want. So let's encourage that trade and don't mark it up. You know, keep that, the cost of those goods down as low as you can keep them. And still make enough money to, you know, to make it worthwhile. But don't, don't inflate the prices because the real reward is their land. Because that's what he says. He says, we'll offer them lines of credit. And when we, we offer them too much credit to where they can't pay it, they'll lop off that credit with their land. And, that in, and in that way, we will, we will grab their land. In fact, what he refers to at one point, he actually says, this will be the way that we rid ourselves of this pest. And we'll do it without ever, ever having to commit some heinous act against them. We won't, we won't have to drop, you know, shed a, you know, uh, you know, draw a drop of blood from them. But he, but he also goes on in this letter to say, but if, if they should ever try to resist and dare to raise the tomahawk, as he said, or the hatchet, I guess, <laughs> raise the hatchet, we'll just crush them and we will strip them of any of their landholds and we'll send them the, to the other side of the Mississippi. He's a, and in doing this and in trying to circumscribe them by, by grabbing all this land grab, I mean, this is, I mean, this has like hints of the, of the, of the mortgage crisis of, of 2008 offer these lines of credit because we're going to make a bunch of money when we, uh, you know, when we foreclose. And, and that's basically what he's calling here. But what he said is, look, native people will have a choice. They can either, you know, haul their asses off to uh, the other side of the Mississippi, which is why I did the whole Louisiana purchase. Or we will absorb them and, and eventually, you know, we'll, we'll make them citizens. And, and that'll end who they are. You know, so in, in 1803, he's saying we'll remove most of them, but some of them you know, we'll, just, we'll just absorb. And it'll be the end of who they are. Because their culture will be exterminated. That's, that's basically what he's saying. So he already, in 1803, had this idea that Native people could be eliminated through various means. Death, removal, and assimilation. I mean, he, he basically you know, nails down you know, most of the, uh, the definitions of genocide in a single letter. And, you know, and, and, and again, this 1803, he sends this letter to, um, to Henry Harrison, and this kind of establishes the policy of, of, of Thomas Jefferson. And history oftentimes tries to treat Thomas Jefferson as the enlightened one. And, and of course, we, we know a lot more about Jefferson and, and some of you know, his blatant racist behavior, whether it had to do with fathering children with his slaves and then having slave children, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think this is a good starting place. And, and I say this because we don't think about the context at, or we don't really consider Thomas Jefferson uh, among those we call Ronald the Gaius. Uh, we don't do that enough.
And, and I think there is plenty of evidence that suggests that he had plenty of ill intent towards Native people, but believed that if he could convince us, Native people, that everything that, you know, that he represented was nothing but kindness and goodness, and that we would, would be, again, <laughs> that they would, he, he would be able to cultivate an, 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 an affectionate attachment from us, not to us, but from us. So, you know, I start there, but, but really, but what I really want to do is, is I talk about some of these, these events. Um, yeah, and I've talked about some of these things before. I want people to understand that when we talk about things like the, uh, the execution of the, of the Dakota 38 in Mankato, Minnesota, which is 1862, December 26th, day after Christmas. I think it's important to realize that that's a week before Abraham Lincoln does the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, he does that, at, you know, in January, I think January 1st or 2nd uh, of 1863. But this is only a week after 38. I mean, and, and, and I think it's important to picture this because when I say 38 people were hanged, I don't know that fully, you know, communicates what happened there. They built a massive gallows. I mean, a gallows that all 38 could be hung at the same time. Actually, you know, they could, they could have hung 40. They had it so they, they literally could hang 40 people in, 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 with one throw of a, you know, a lever or, or knocking out a block or whatever. And, and that's what they did. And this would happen, you know, with, uh, with Abraham Lincoln as a result of the conflicts caused by the Homestead Act that he signed into law. So I think putting context, there's a, there's a series or, or a, a special coming out on PBS, you know, I think it's airing this weekend, that's supposed to show the complicated and complex nature of Abraham Lincoln. But I guarantee they aren't going to talk about this. And, you know, and this isn't the only, you know, the only event in his presidency, in spite of the fact that he was assassinated. So there's this, and obviously there's civil war and all kinds of other stuff going on. So there's this execution. Now you would think, that this singular event, which is now still stands the time, you know, throughout history as the largest mass execution in the history of the United States, you would think that would be enough of a, of a, you know, of a mark on the presidency. But it's not. One of the most heinous massacres in U.S. history of Native people is the Sand Creek Massacre. And that, too, happened during Lincoln's administration. But nobody ever connects Lincoln to these things. And, and, and look, not only was this, uh, this massacre a, a heinous act, a crime against humanity, but, but the details that came from every, all accounts was, was how grotesque, you know, the, the cutting of, of male genitalia, the cutting off of, of women's breasts, the, the, the sharpshooting of, of, of little native kids walking around their, their, you know, the dead. All of these things are accounted for, and, and you can find it. Look up Sand Creek Massacre. You'll see some of just the incredible accounts of what, what, uh, what transpired there. And the guy responsible for it, Colonel Shivington, he was actually a, a, um, an ordained minister. And yeah, an ordained minister. And, you know, he basically viewed his job as a Christian minister, um, fulfilling you know that you know that um responsibility by killing native people i mean and he basically thought killing killing indians was was a great contribution to mankind and he talked about that and and as much as there was 
a level of public condemnation of Colonel Shivington, the Lincoln administration did nothing to hold him accountable. He was never court-martialed. He was never never removed from office in any way. I mean, he, he never advanced his career after that. I mean, he may have tarnished his reputation, but he didn't suffer any consequences for, for, for these heinous acts that happened under, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, under his, um, his command. So those are two, you know, of the most significant crimes against humanity that native people had experienced. And they both happened during the Lincoln administration. How is it that we don't know this, right? I mean, and, and when I talk to people, they oftentimes, you know, will, will always, you know, come back to me and say, I can't believe that I don't know this. I can't believe that as well-educated as I am, I've got, you know, this doctorate, I've got a PhD and I studied this and I studied that and I've never heard this before. So just as I say to them, I say to you, check it out. You know, look, look at the history. You know, you don't have to take my word for it. I know that, that you know, since the time that I've been doing this show, there I can name a number of accounts where people said, oh, what he's saying can't be right. That's got to be bullshit. I mean, I, I've heard people say that. And then even, even as they begin to call me out and they start to do their own <laughs> research on, you know, on Google or whatever else, that's when they, they come to realize, wow, I can't believe that stuff actually really happened. So I, I, that's, you know, I, I have to start with, with, with Abraham Lincoln, but then we can go on. I mean, Little Bighorn, you know, the, uh, where Custer's last stand, as they call it. Why was, was Custer so hell-bent on doing this stuff? Well, and, and what is the context? I mean, by many accounts, Custer's plan was to wipe out a bunch of Native people, the, the Lakota, and then he was going to run for president. But who was the president while he was doing this? Who was the commander in chief? Well, that would be Grant. So the hero of the North, right? The, the, the hero of the Republic. Um, it was under his, you know, under, under his command as the commander in chief that, that the attempt, the, the failed attempt by, uh, by George Custer to, uh, you know, to, to, to basically wipe out the Lakota, you know, failed. So, so again, I'm, I'm, I can't, you know, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time putting a lot of context, but I want to put enough context to it so, so people can at least begin to think about what is the relationship between the actual event and who else, what other historical figures should have been connected to them. So you got, you got Ulysses S. Grant, who was in command, who commander of chief, commander in chief when, um, uh, when the the Battle of Little, Little Bighorn occurs, so that's you know again 1876, and then we go to uh, um, ironically the uh, what is, by many accounts is is the the bookend or the final chapter of of, of massacres, which is the um, the massacre at Wounded Knee. Nobody ever thinks about well, who is the president? Well, ironically, the president at the time that the the Wounded Knee massacre occurred was Benjamin Harrison. The grandson to William Henry Harrison, who received the letter from uh, from uh, Thomas Jefferson that I spoke about earlier, and 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 the, what's the significance of that? Well, it shows you again that continuity of racist policies that would transcend even within a family, from William Henry Harrison to his grandson Benjamin Harrison. That that the idea that you could just 
kill native people, bury them in the mass graves and, and, and shoot them like fish in a barrel. It was acceptable. Nobody was ever, you know, condemned for that. I mean, even L. Frank Baum, who, uh, you know, who, who called for the annihilation of native people and the extermination of native people in the run-up to the massacre at Wounded Knee, he at least condemned how it looked when they actually did it. But he actually condemned the massacre at Wounded Knee because um, U.S. soldiers, you know, shot each other in the crossfire. I mean, and that, that's how, how poorly it was managed. But there was never any, uh, any reprisal. There was no accountability held by Benjamin Harrison to the commanders involved in, in the massacre at Wounded Knee. So again, I think it's important that there's some context here. Understanding that, that Benjamin Harrison, you know, again, this, this idea of, of white elitism, he, you know, his grandfather, you know, actually was, the, was, a, uh, was a president. As I said, William Henry Harrison, after being the, uh, uh, the governor of Indiana Territory, would actually run for president, but died of pneumonia like a month in. But his legacy as both the governor of uh, Indiana Territory and the grandfather of Benjamin Harrison is, it should not be, it, it, it should not be ignored. There, there should be context. All right, so then we go from there. Uh, what do we got next time? I was, okay, and this one I think is, this, this is kind of disturbing uh, on, a, on a couple of different levels. When we get into Oklahoma, the, the two, two of the, the big historical events that only now have begun to get attention is the massacre uh, at, at, in Tulsa of, of black people. Uh, so the, the, the Black Wall Street, you know, as, they, as they called it. This happens in Tulsa uh, in, uh, in 1921. So it's already, we're in the 20th century. Harding is, is, the, uh, um, is, is the, the president at the time. And there is no accountability. In fact, there's no conviction, there's no prosecution of a single white man for the massacre that took place in, uh, in, in Tulsa. Of, of, again, destroying Black Wall Street. But the other thing that's, that I find interesting about that, that 50 miles away is essentially what, what was beginning, um, uh, the beginning of the Osage murders. And by many accounts, by some accounts, they, they call the reign of terror in, uh, in the, as far as the Osage murders. They say it's between 1921 and uh, 1926. The, the truth be told, the murders started before then, and they continued on well after that. And, and by, you know, by some historical accounts, they say, uh, you know, as many as 60 or more people were murdered. But when you, when, if you read Killers of the Flower Moon by, uh, by David Grant, you realize that, that there were many more murders than that. They were just never connected the same way. When, when the Osage murders were investigated, it was, again, just like I, I'm, I'm trying to raise here, that there's no context. They were trying to, to pin a single serial killer for these things. So they didn't connect a bunch of the dots. By some estimates, there were as many as a, a thousand Osage that were murdered in that period of time in the, in the 1920s. And of course, the, the, the context is that black people were experiencing the same level of racism when it came to the, to the Tulsa. Well, they call it riots, but it's really a massacre, the Tulsa riot. That's, so that's Harding. But the, the Osage murders, which isn't a single event, it's, it's, it's murders that involved 
you know, uh, you know, gunshots, you know, people who were shot to death, people who were uh, poisoned, people who were blown up in their homes, uh, arson, you know, that killed people. And this was all done, for those that don't know, this was done so that the head rights of the oil revenue that the Osage people were, were living high on the hog off of um, would, would be controlled by white men. White men were literally marrying Native women with the sole purpose of gaining control of, the, of their oil revenue. So they would marry these women, have a few kids, and this is the level of premeditation. Have a few kids, then kill their wives, and because they were the guardians of their uh, of these children, they would have control. And and of course, it would also uh, play a big role in what the Osage look like today. Many of the descendants of those white men who murdered to gain control of the of the Osage wealth are 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 considered Osage today. So this is this is how complicated. But again, let me put some historical context to that too when I when I talk about who the presidents were. So not only again, I think part of the context is understanding that the Tulsa riots, the Tulsa massacre, and the Osage murders, literally fifty miles uh, away from each other, less than hundred miles away from each other, but um, but happening you know it, it, within the same context of white supremacy. Osage murders, however. Just incredibly premeditated. Um, the idea that you would actually be be planning this so far in advance that you would marry, have children, then commit a murder. I mean, that's incredible to me. I, again, I encourage people to read The uh, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. But uh, I, I think it's important to realize. That, so not only do you have, you know, um, Wimby Harding, but you also have Calvin Coolidge, who, who was a president during these these murders, and, and even... Herbert Hoover. Now, the significance of, of Hoover being the president while some of these have happened is that his vice president is Charles Curtis. You know, we, we talk all you know a lot about native people running for office. Charles Curtis was native. He was raised by his his call grandmother. He 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 was native. And you know, and he even kind of made light of it. You'd see him, you know, talking about you know his tommyhawk. There's there's we played some of that video before. Yeah, so Charles Curtis, a native person who makes it to the second highest office in the United States. But he did some damage along the way. So not only was he the vice president, and he was actually called upon. The Osage, even before he was vice president, while he was a, a U.S. senator and, and a congressman from Kansas, the Osage were petitioning him. They were calling him. They were writing to him. They were asking him to intervene because they knew that he was an important, uh, an important figure and that he was native. And yet nothing was done. Nothing was done. You know, we've, we've talked about this before, how when native people get into these offices, they compromise who they are. And they, they, they conduct themselves in a manner so as not to violate the systems of power, even as they get there. So, you know, for all those, all the people who are, you know, just, you know, rejoicing and, and you know, being euphoric about Deb Hallen and Sharice uh, David getting elected in the Congress and ultimately Deb Hallen being uh, um, nominated for the Interior Secretary. Look, there was a, there was a native vice president. And... We could say, well, the time wasn't right for him to have you know, done, done anything positive for Native people. Let's be clear. It wasn't just that he didn't step up for Native people. He was a very much a part of the problem. He was a main proponent 
of, um, of the Allotment Act. He played a singular role, you know, a singular, singularly significant role in much of the land loss of Oklahoma. Some of the stuff that we're, we're talking about even today with the, with the McGirt decision. By, you know, by convincing the five civilized tribes, you know, you know to surrender lands. So Charles Curtis, as a native person who, who lived in, in this time frame, the Tulsa riots, the you know, and murders, the Osage murders, he was anything but a help to native people. And in fact, he was part of the problem. He was part of that system of oppression. He was called upon and, and, and played a, a major role in the, uh, in the, the General Allotment Act. And, and look, and we've, talk, we've talked about this, this kind of thing before. I mean, Obama himself credits the, um, the Homestead Act as, you know, signed by Lincoln as this, as this tremendous, this, this great achievement. And then he talks about it as a credit to the union. He said, there are certain things only a union can do. Only a union could harness the courage of our pioneers to settle the American West, which is why he passed the Homestead Act, giving a tract of land to anyone seeking a stake in our growing economy. <laughs> but of course, in order to give 100 acres, you had to take it from somebody, which is what ultimately led to the, the, to the, uh, the Mankato executions. And this was a policy that, that, that Obama in the modern era would praise about how to stimulate the economy. You take, you take land away from somebody. And then you give it to the to the people who deserve it. Well, the General Allotment Act is 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 a similar situation, and and one of the one of the the, the presidents who who was quoted about the significance of that is is uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and he basically said of the Allotment Act, a mighty pulverizing engine to break up the tribal mass. I mean, he praised the Allotment Act not just for the idea of of accessing lands, but for the detriment that it would have on Native people. See, and, and the whole point of me doing this program is, the, is so that, that it is better understood that these things did not happen in a vacuum. And it's not just, you know, it's not just the, the, the general or the colonel who was, who was in command at the time of, of a massacre. It's who was the, the commander-in-chief. It's how much continuity exists in racist policies from Washington to Biden. And I think that's what's important. Like I said, I, I have to remind people that during the Obama administration, he traveled in what was, was slated as this historic visit to Indian country. He was going to be the first sitting president to go visit Native people on Native lands. And of course, where did he go? He went to Standing Rock. Why Standing Rock? Well, because his senior policy advisor was from Standing Rock. In fact, not only was she from Standing Rock, but her brother was a tribal chairman. So already the, the native territory, the native peoples who had the most access via Obama's uh, uh, um, a senior policy advisor, they already had the most access, but that's where Obama went. So he went for, to this big flag-waving event. They actually went to Cannonball, which is, which is where much of the Dakota Access Pipeline you know, controversy would, you know, would, would really um, occur. But he goes to Cannonball as part of a Flag Day celebration. 
he gives a speech quoting Sitting Bull and, and, and a speech in which Sitting Bull talked about how important it was to do for the children, how to, how to make a future for, the, for, for Native children. And Obama quotes that. And, and he, he elaborates on this importance of, doing, of building something for, for Native kids. Even as he's talking about things like, you know, ensuring that Native people have a, have a shot at the American dream. So what dream was fulfilled? After his visit to Standing Rock and Cannonball is when, <laughs> the, is when the, the Lakota were faced with, uh, with the Dakota Access Pipeline. That was Obama's gift for his visit to, to Indian country to run a pipeline that would threaten the very life-giving water um, that, that, that flows through, through Standing Rock. And today, we sit here as if it wasn't Obama and, Ob and, Obama and Biden who were in office when that, when that all happened. That, that pipeline was, was proposed, it was approved, and it was built during Obama-Biden. It, it happened to get finished during Trump. And so, you know, again, with, with the euphoria, not just over somebody like Deb Haaland, but the person that would nominate her to, to her, to her uh, position, there's a lot of euphoria in, in quote-unquote Indian country over, over Joe Biden. But you've got, we've got to, we have to have, you know, some, you know, we have to acknowledge that continuity of racist policies. That, that goes through all of those presidencies. That's why we use words like we use words like that because every president has had its contribution to trying to destroy who we are, who we were, try, uh, trying to impose the will of the United States on native people. And, and look, we, we hear a lot of dissension within native territories about asserting sovereignty. And what it really means. But make no mistake about it. The biggest obstacle we have to achieving and, and to asserting our own autonomy is not each other. I mean, we, can, we can be obstacles, but the big ob biggest obstacle we have is the United States and, and the individual states. You know, I've said it before. The National Security Council basically directed the Bush administration not to um, uh, or to, to vote for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. They opposed it. In fact, that would make the United States one of four countries, you know, with, the, with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, to vote against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And not that this, this was a panacea for, for Native people, but the reason the United States voted against it was because they did not want to treat a document that encouraged self-determination and self-government in the way that it was written. They believed that when they used words like self-determination, which was, you know, basically the, the general policy of the United States, that, but when they said it, they didn't mean self-determination in the international definition. They meant self-determination as to mean internal self-determination. They could govern themselves like a, like a corporation or an organization or like the, the Lions Club or something like that or the Moose Lodge. They opposed the notion that 
Native people would assert sovereignty over their lands and over the resources. And that today still stands as our biggest obstacle to asserting sovereignty and autonomy. Again, folks, let me remind you that as you look at some of these historical events and these moments in, in, our, in our history, we have to put it in context. You know, I, I know history books like to create a timestamp for who we are. And they'll say, this was the Iroquois, or this was the Algonquin, or this was the Sioux. Of course, they're always going to use the wrong words. <laughs> and and they, will, they'll, they will teach another generation of American kids this stereotypical view of us as relics of the past. But in every step along that 200 plus years of American history, there was our history. And our history predates that, you know, that 200 plus years. So I think as we look at these events, I, again, I, I caution, I advise, I encourage you to put it into context. Know what else was happening in the world. Know who the president of the United States was. Know what other policies were happening to other people. Know that at, at, while the Tulsa riots were going on, the Osage murders were happening too. It's important to have context. Look, I want to thank you guys for listening. I'm John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. We'll see you soon. Yahweh.